0: I was just, uh, you know, I was talking with my wife last night and I was mentioning that this is our third year doing this now uh, that I've been joining you two. And I think you two have been doing this for longer, right?
1: I think we might have one, one more year on that. And we'd, I'd been a guest on Film Baby Film a few times before that. But yeah.
2: Yes, you you complete us. Oh, gosh. <laughs> oh, we complete great. you. I don't know. Whichever way you want to you wanna <laughs> put it. I know that we're in a weird year for talking about you
0: know, best films of the year and and all of that. And I know we will get into that as we actually dig into the episode and everything. But I was just thinking, you know, it would be a shame to not continue on this tradition, even in this uh, strangest of times, right?
2: Yeah, I think ultimately it's also very rewarding because I'm not sure that I would have seen half as many 2020 films mm. if it were not for you sort of dragging me out of my comfort zone in terms of the films I was watching mm. I genuinely I I was so reluctant to get to to watch contemporary <laughs> film because I didn't want to see anything that was gonna challenge me too much or surprise me too much and so I was watching a lot of comfort food you suggesting that we do this episode forced me to get out of that and I'm so grateful because there have been a lot of great movies this year
0: Yeah, I was, I just focused on 2020 films in December and was just astonished by how many great films there were.
1: Yeah, I'm in the same boat. I didn't really start the catch up until you reached out and said, do you want to do this this year? And then I, ever since then, it's been nonstop. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. I slowed down a little bit at the beginning of the year and have gone back into doing some of the classics again. And that's been, you know, that's been nice again. But yeah, I, I still feel like I'm you know, as I keep trying to keep up with all this new stuff that's coming out, there's still so much that's coming out that is really, really interesting. So yeah, it'll be fun to, to talk about this. Well, you ready to uh, dive into our episode here?
2: Ready to go. Yes, sir.
0: Welcome to Cinema Cocktail, a podcast dedicated to engaging with film and the art of the moving image. I'm your host, Josh Hornbeck. I'm joined today by John Lobinger, host of the Film Baby Film Podcast, and DJ Moore, host of The Real Conversation. We're getting ready to dive into the first part of our yearly epic Best of the Year episode. So, you know, we normally would do this on the Film Baby Film Podcast, uh, which is currently on hiatus. And so, as we were talking about this, John, we mentioned maybe moving this over to the Cinema Cocktail umbrella for. for this year john i'm just checking in with you you know we on our on the criterion channel surfing podcast you mentioned that you've been really thinking what you might want to be doing with film baby film uh have you continued to be thinking about that or is it are you still kind of on hold as you plan a wedding as you <laughs> look at a bright new future uh, as uh The political landscape changes uh you know what's what's next for you
2: yeah i'm excited to do podcasting not under fascism this is great (laughs) (laughs) yeah no thanks for having me on josh this is always a treat it's always a treat to talk with you and dj about anything but particularly these year-end episodes which do tend to truly become epic Yeah, no, I've been... Film Baby Film is currently on hiatus. My goal might be a little bit ambitious at the moment, but I've been reading a a great book called Postwar that talks a lot about the films of Europe after World War II in the context of just uh, the intellectual history of the continent. And there's a part of me that would really like to get... I mean, this is like the upper echelon of pretentiousness when it comes to talking about movies. But the (laughs) idea of viewing movies through like the history of ideas, Mm. I think because of the fact that we're coming out of, you know, this mini political dark age, I think my brain is all of a sudden beginning to marshal like all sorts of new energies and and new ambitions. And so I'm thinking about bigger and better things. But we'll we'll see if that continues to be the plan. I think we'll relaunch Film Baby Film in some shape or fashion in the summer.
0: Nice. Really great. DJ, what's up with you and the real conversation? What have you been up to over this past year?
1: So yeah, this this year I took a bit of time to try and figure out, I wanted to bring the real conversation back in some form. I think I've mentioned on our, our past year-end episodes that the, the podcast days are kind of over for that with a, a four-year-old at home and the, the <laughs> amount of time it takes to edit and record. I just, I can't do it anymore and haven't really been able to do it ever since my son was born. But so I started playing around with the idea of doing live episodes on Instagram. Mm. And the, the first kind of trial with that was... I was just thinking about all the movies I have to catch up on, and it really covered pretty much every letter of the alphabet. So I thought, why don't I do episodes where I go through the alphabet and just start with A and do movies, either rewatch some movies and watch movies I hadn't seen yet, and so I started doing that and just called it the hashtag Real Convo ABCs and had a lot of fun with that. Was was seeing some great movies I'd never seen before and rewatching movies I hadn't seen in years and it was it started off with with good intentions and uh thinking i would get get through quite a few and then i i kept adding more and more movies to each episode so <laughs> a was one movie b was three movies by the time i got to f i was up to i think i did like 10 movies for f and i was just like okay this is this is going to take a couple years to get through at this rate but then as as it got closer and closer to the end of the year. I just felt like I wanted to do something that was kind of going back to the original intent of The Real Conversation, which was, it was people talking about what movies have meant to them through, throughout their life and movies they've connected to. And just thinking everybody being stuck at home and it, the holidays are coming up and Christmas and holiday movies have been a big part of my family tradition at the holidays. And I thought um, maybe there's something there. So I reached out to some friends and said, hey, what do you think about doing a doing an episode where i have a guest on and they talk about their favorite Christmas or holiday movie and why why it's kind of followed them through life and become part of their annual traditions and mm. these friends were all on board so I, I kind of opened it up publicly and I had four guests scheduled and after about 24 hours of throwing it on Instagram I had 15 episodes <laughs> and this was right before Thanksgiving so realizing that time was short I cut it there and we, we ended up doing 16 episodes from uh, November 30th through December 23rd and that was the June single reels episodes of The Real Conversation, which I'm going to talk a little bit about when we get to kind of what we did catching up on movies. But it was, I thought it was a great experience. I got some great feedback from people on it and people really seem to connect to it.
0: That's neat. It's always fun to figure out how we we reimagine and re-envision the work that we're doing and the the stuff that we're putting out into the world. And uh, it sounds like both of you are really, trying to figure out new ways to engage with the the stuff that you're doing so that's really exciting. Well, as we look back on 2020, it was a really it was a really weird year for film viewing, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious to know how has the pandemic and and the closure of movie theaters and just the the shift in distribution, how has that affected your your approach to watching new releases. Your approach to film viewing in general over the last year, John.
2: Oh gosh, Josh, this is like the question of the moment, isn't it? This yeah. is like the ultimate, the ultimate question of what do we do during quarantine for people that love movies. Now, to some extent, like we've all been training for quarantine, right? Like <laughs> developing a, a a space and time where you can interact with humanity all by yourself like sitting there and just watching movies about other people in in your home so it's like I've been training for years for this but at the same time I'm a like a movie theater attend like mm-hmm. I had the AMC A-list membership I went to probably five different theaters a month here in New York City so many great movie theaters and quarantine really changed my viewing hit my viewing habits hard I had a ticket to see First Cow by Kelly Reichardt the week that it came out, and that ticket was invalidated because all the New York City movie theaters were closed. And so, and that ultimately was the last time, honestly, before prepping for this podcast. I almost feel guilty admitting that, but I didn't watch any new films once the movie theaters closed up until a few months ago when we discussed doing this. So this had a major impact on the types of films I've, I was viewing, and the format in which I was viewing it in. Obviously, that's, you know, small potatoes compared to the massive impact it's had on the world economy and people's lives, and I don't, in no way, shape, or form want to compare the two, but just in, you know, my, my own personal life and, and how it impacts this podcast, the way that I watched movies completely changed.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. DJ, how did it affect you is in the way that you were watching things?
1: Pretty much exactly the same. I I saw 10 movies in the theater in 2020. Uh, Four of those were 2020 releases. The other six were catch-up movies in the Mm. early days. I think they were the very early days of 2020 before we recorded last year's episode, the 2019 movie episode. So by the time the theaters closed, I don't think I saw anything that was really a new release or 2020 release. I, I saw The Way Back, on Blu-ray somewhat early on in the pandemic and then didn't really watch anything else till summer maybe mm-hmm. and really didn't do a serious catch up until again we we started planning this episode and I realized I think at that point I'd seen maybe 9 2020 releases and as of last night have now seen 43 2020 releases <laughs> so uh for this list about <laughs> just for a top 10 list is pretty much 25% of the movies I saw at all this year. And yeah, I mean, like, like John, I'm a, I'm a theater goer. It's decreased certainly since fatherhood, but you know, pre-fatherhood, I was at the movies 75, 80 plus times a year. I think in 2019, I was, I lucked out and I was able to see 56 movies in the theater. And so to just drop to to 10 feels very foreign to me (laughs) and to not have, not really have been since the beginning of the year pretty much is, is just a strange feeling and getting used to, to just finding everything on whatever streaming service it's on, which can be a hassle, just to <laughs> find out where it is, when it's coming out. A lot of the movies I wanted to see really hadn't even been released yet. I, I spent quite a bit of money renting them, which I hate doing for a one-time watch. But yeah, it's it totally altered my my movie watching.
0: Yeah, I you know I think we all love the the theater experience, you know. John, I have the AMC A list like you. I I love being able to just kind of walk into any you know theater. We I live in the suburbs just outside of Seattle, and being able to go and see anything. Uh, I also have a movie pass for our little art house theater as well, and so I could walk into pretty much any screening at our one of our. Four or five screens uh, at any time of day and see any of the films that were showing. And so to have all of that go away and for us, lockdown started pretty early. We started, I think, in just the beginning of March in the Seattle area. Uh, it all happened pretty fast. And yeah, it it was. You know, I didn't see very many films. Uh, most of the films that I saw in. Uh, the beginning of the year were catch-ups for for watching Oscar stuff, and I don't think I saw any 2020 releases in the theaters. And then what was interesting for me was beginning to try to navigate the new landscape, whether it was the way Kino was doing their... Online cinematech, their distribution to support art house theaters, or trying to figure out how to do some of these these day and date uh, theatrical premieres or renting things from digital festivals. It was an, uh, a really intriguing, kind of sometimes baffling experience to try to navigate the new world of online. Distribution, and we'll talk about more more about that uh, later on in the episode. But it was it was definitely uh, an interesting experience to to see how the industry shifted to to try to approach new releases. And I ended up seeing more new releases this year, I think, than I have in previous years because of that.
2: The world was changing already, but it feels like what was a glacial <laughs> a glacial evolution. Yeah. became just an onslaught once people had to stay home to to be safe and to keep other people safe. Things just changed so rapidly. One of the major questions, and I don't know if we'll end up discussing it later on, but just is, what happens when we return to some level of normalcy? Yeah, What's going to happen with movie studios? What's going to happen with movie theaters? How AMC has not declared bankruptcy yet is just mind boggling so yeah, yeah we're oh gosh it's been a it's been a crazy year for so many different reasons, definitely film watching, and we're gonna, we're, there's going to be a lot of there's going to be a lot more crazy in the near future as well i'm sure
0: yeah yeah definitely so well, because it has been a weird year and because uh, a lot of us have been supplementing or Instead of watching new releases, spending a lot of our time catching up on classic films, rediscovering old favorites. You know, I, I thought it would be interesting to just talk about what a-, a few of our favorite films that we discovered or even rediscovered from the past year. So, we're going to do just a really quick top five rediscoveries or discoveries from the past year. So, John, what is your number
2: five discovery from 2020? So I have down Full Moon in Paris by Eric Romer from his Comedies and Proverbs set. However, just overall, Eric Romer's filmography was... I know that I'd seen Claire's Knee before 2020, and I may have even started watching some of these like in December 2019. But overall, my real deep dive, my real entry into the Eric Romer film universe was this year and... It was actually prior to COVID, and I just loved it. I, it, was, mm-hmm. uh, it was one of those—he's one of those filmmakers that presents movies that seem like snapshots into a livable universe. And I just found that to be such an exciting find and discovery, and they're eminently rewatchable films. Full Moon in Paris is probably my favorite just because of how 1980s it is. It's like 1980s through a funhouse mirror because it's 1980s Paris— And so that's not the 1980s that I'm familiar with from my own films and from my own life. So seeing that was just such a joy and it's so fun and everything is, everything looks weird and gorgeous. And Eric Romer, I think, never attended a party in his life. And so seeing his depictions of what he believed a 1980s party was like and how people danced, it's just, you know, just one of the funnest movies I saw all year. Yeah, Eric Romer. This was uh, a great discovery, a great deep dive for me in 2020.
0: That's awesome. That's great. DJ, what was your number five?
1: So a lot of of these that I picked were kind of the highlights that came out of that real Convo ABC series I was doing. And my number five is kind of a bit of a double feature, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead and Death Trap, both directed by Sidney Lumet. Uh, I'd seen Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, I think when it first came out on Blu-ray, I think I remember enjoying it at the time, didn't stand out all that much to me, but re-watching it, I just had a whole new appreciation for the performances. I mean, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Ethan Hawke, Albert Finney, uh, Marissa Tomei, it's just such a great cast. And it's, I don't know, for me, it just stands out as something a little bit different for Sidney Lumet, but at the same time kind of is right there with the rest of his 70s film library that he did, even though it's years later. And just really really enjoyed rewatching it, and kind of rediscovering those performances. And then I had a list of movies left over from that uh, had inspired Ryan Johnson for *Knives Out* and *Death Trap* was one of them. And I'd never seen it uh, since I did *Before the Devil Knows You're Dead* for B. I figured I'd do *Death Trap* for D. And discover a new movie and really enjoyed that one it's based on a play and it's one of those movies that you you definitely feel that you you it feels like you're watching a stage play at times it's michael Caine, christopher reeve diane cannon and a lot of good twists and turns and just really enjoyed what sydney lumet did with that where he was bringing a stage play to the screen and i think he did it in a, a fun way that uh I don't know. I, I don't know how that one had passed me by over the years, but I just never got around to it. So, um, yeah, those were two that uh, just stood out.
0: That's cool. I'm a big, big Sidney Lumet fan. And every time I feel like I come up on the, the edges of film, his filmography, I keep discovering more of his work.
1: Yep. The same.
0: <laughs> My number five is Losing Ground, directed by Kathleen Collins. It's, it's just a really, really incredible film. It stars Sorette Scott and Bill Gunn and Dwayne Jones from uh, Night of the Living Dead. It is just a magnificent film about marriage, about a woman finding her voice as an artist. It's about black femininity. It's really, really masterful. And it's really tragic that Kathleen Collins didn't get to make more films because I think that she was a really unique voice in cinema and I do think it's one of those ones that, for people that haven't discovered it yet, I really do hope that more people go on to find it. There's a, a great disc release out there, and uh, it played on Criterion Channel for a bit. So, yeah, it's a it's a really really great film.
2: Dwayne Jones is also in Ganja and Hess, which I watched. I watched Losing Ground this year for the first time, and also watched. Ganja Hess for the first time. So yeah, an, am- an amazing filmography for a guy <laughs> who appeared in a relatively limited number of films. He certainly managed to maximize his screen time, that's for sure. That's right. That's right. John, uh, what's your number four? So I have this snarky Twitter feed that goes through my head sort of like of self-criticism. And one of the things I beat myself up a little bit for is the fact that I watch so many of the movies I watch to tick off my sight and sound 250 list. But it's absolutely true. That's the way that I pick a lot of my movies. So I watched Abel Gance's Napoleon, the epic silent French film Napoleon, right after I read Andrew Roberts' biography of Napoleon, which is like ridiculous. I watched, I read like a 20 hour long book and then watched a four hour long silent film. But this is my life. This, you know, welcome to quarantine 2020. An incredibly thrilling movie. I just, I was, so, I continue to be shocked and surprised by how effective silent filmmakers were, particularly, I feel like towards the end of the 20s, when, you know, their budgets were bigger, there was a lot of, there was a lot of government support for a lot of these filmmakers, the audiences were there, and they had more experience about how to deliver like a really epic film. And this is, for me, one of the great silent films of all time, one of the great films of all time. A special shout out to the scenes where Napoleon rises to power. They must have had a thousand extras in those shots. And they genuinely looked like rabid Napoleon supporters. I'm getting tingles just thinking about some of the scenes in that film. I could not recommend it highly enough. The length might be off-putting to some people. And the fact that it's a black and white silent film. Although if you're listening to this podcast, probably not you. But I still think that this is a movie that like anybody could watch maybe they would need a couple of sittings i'm a huge fan and you know i'm i'm grateful that uh however i got there that i ended up seeing this movie
0: that's great i have the disc sitting in my my collection and just need to take the plunge
2: i had it sitting for 3 years if <laughs> i think if i hadn't read the book and at a certain point when you read the you know you read the over 1000 page book you say you know what maybe the 4 hour movie isn't such a stretch
0: yeah that's true that's true <laughs> DJ, what's your number four?
1: Well, it's not Napoleon, but this was a movie I had sitting in my pile for about three or four years. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So it's Facts of Life from 1960, starring Lucille Ball and Bob Hope. And I was just really blown away by how ahead of its time this movie was. It's, It's... a comedy a situational comedy about two couples that are friends and bob hope and lucille ball end up having an affair with one another and it's kind of the the whole movie is what happens when when (laughs) couples that are friends two of them start having an affair with one another and hiding that from their partners their families how it affects their life just for a movie in made in 1960 it really didn't didn't seem to hold back too much on on the theme, which I was not prepared for with a movie starring Bob Hope and Lucille Ball but it's it's very funny I'm a big Lucille Ball fan, so it was it, fun to see her in something different and not necessarily her doing kind of slapstick and i yeah I just really really enjoyed it and caught me off guard, just not what I was expecting from from this movie and again as I was making this list it, it was just another one that that stood out
0: Hmm. I always like trying to find those those classic
2: comedies that stand out. That sounds fun. I just put that on my list. I was just looking it up because I'd never heard of it. That sounds amazing.
1: Yeah, and I I guess they made four movies together, I think. I think this is the third of four movies they made. So now I want to track down the other three and, and see what those were like. Nice.
0: For number four for me, there'll be a recurring pattern throughout my both these films here and and a lot of the my, my best of 2020 this year i did a at home streaming virtual film festival that i programmed and i ended up making a lot of disc- film discoveries but i also saw a lot of great 2020 films and the two films by rosine Mbakum Two documentaries really just rose to the top of the films that I saw in this past year. They blew me away. For the Criterion Channel Surfing podcast, I interviewed Jonathan Miller, who's the founder of Ovid TV, which is a streaming platform, and he highly recommended Rosine Bakum's documentaries. And after that recommendation, I thought I wanted to dive in, and so I programmed her two documentaries as part of the, the film festival that I did. And these two films are just stunning. They are looking at what it means to be a, a black woman immigrating to Europe. What does it mean to exist in another land, to, to feel torn between your homeland and the new, the new country that you live in? The two films uh, here are The Two Faces of a Bamaleke Woman and Chez Jolet Coiffeur. The first film really explores her relationship with her mother and her home. She goes back to visit her family. And the second one looks at a hair salon, and it all takes place within a small hair salon for African refugees in Europe. And it's all set within the confines of that. And Rosine's shooting style is so precise and so incredibly restrained that she uses the mirrors of the this small strip mall beauty salon to make it feel like the space is so much bigger than it is. She's just an incredible filmmaker and really captures women's lives in a way that is really pretty incredible and these two films really blew me away John what was your number three for discoveries
2: so this is a fun one my brother got me a year-long movie subscription at the beginning of the year and I'd never thought of dipping my toes into the movie streaming service because, you know, I already have the Criterion channel and Amazon Prime and Netflix and Shutter blah, blah, blah. So early on in my movie subscription, I found out from Matt that there was this director, Yuzo Kawashima, who unfortunately is not well known in the West. I mean, there was one film that had a Eureka Blu-ray release and that is now out of print and this is he's a sadly underknown Japanese filmmaker who made, you know, upwards of 20 films including some that are considered classics of Japanese film specifically a sun tribe myth from the Bakumatsu era I watched that as well as four other movies on Mubi, and I'm just kicking myself that I didn't rewatch them and then watch the other three or four movies that were streaming because they were just so delightful. Mix of tragedy and comedy, and some people consider him a forerunner to the Japanese new wave. I don't know enough about Japanese film history to be able to say that, but whatever his context in, in film history is, just those movies were so much fun and here's to hoping that more of his movies are made available whether it's through streaming or physical media or both in the upcoming years
0: dj what is your number three
1: my number three was the endless which is i think from 2017 directed by justin benson and aaron moorhead and they actually play the, the two main characters in it had never Even heard of this movie saw it as a trailer on another blu-ray i was watching and uh something about the trailer just caught my eye and i ordered this movie and again rolled it into this abc series i was doing and was just really impressed with with how low budget this was and what what they were able to do with the story it's about two brothers who escape a ufo death cult when they're younger and as adults decide to go back or are kind of drawn back to it for for reasons I won't say here. But really, it, it's a great example, I think, of less is more, and they really get away with a lot. And, and it's not really horror, it's kind of thriller, some horror elements, and just super, super, I mean, micro-budget, but really, really impressive. And they actually have a new movie that was out this year, Synchronic, with Anthony Mackie which I'm looking forward to. I don't think it's available until March, but that's one that's definitely on my list to see just after seeing what they did with the endless.
0: Yeah. This is one that came to my little art house theater back in 2017 and I got to see it and yeah, it, it definitely has that micro-budget indie horror feel, and uh, it's always really impressive when filmmakers are able to capture the that growing sense of dread and really create an atmosphere with without many effects and uh, using uh, really simple techniques. Yeah, my number three are uh, the films of Kalik Allah. He's a filmmaker. A few years ago, he released a film called Black Mother which was just this incredible documentary that blew me away. I saw it at the Portland International Film Festival, and all of his films are playing right now on the Criterion Channel. And it was a real pleasure to get to revisit that and to to work my way through his earlier work, which all of the films really build on each other beautifully. The films feel almost more like poems. They're documentaries, but... They feel more essayistic. They feel more like you're just watching portraits of life, snapshots. He uses asynchronous sound so that the images don't match what you're hearing, which creates this almost hypnotic state. And you see the evolution of his technique over the course of the two short films and the two features that are on the channel and that uh, he's made so far. And you see him wrestling with what it means to try to document people with less privilege than than he has. And the technique really develops as a way for him to avoid objectifying his subjects and to give them a little more power and a little more agency. And uh, it's it's really beautiful. There's something really stirring about the work that he does. I can't wait to see his next film, which is "I Walk on Water." It was available very briefly on YouTube for free, and Grasshopper Films is really seen it. Khalik Allah's films are ones that I just uh, would highly recommend.
2: Grasshopper Films is they're one of those distributors that is just doing God's work.
0: Yes, yeah, they're pretty incredible. Yeah. John, number two, you have a uh, what I see looks to be a giant category here. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, yeah, not only is it a giant category, but it's it's uh something I've already discussed at length on Criterion Channel Surfing. No, I look, if if someone asked me what did I do with my 2020, like if I had uh if I went back to school and they said, "Well, John, what did you do to, with your time off with your summer vacation?" I would say, "Well, I watched a lot of Giallo and science fiction, and <laughs> it, it what it was it was such a it was such a comfort blanket. It was such a calling back to movies that I was intimately familiar with, and that I have such warm. I don't know if it's nostalgia. I don't know if they're just movies that have so many different layers or that create worlds that even if you don't want to inhabit them, you do want to visit them." over and over again. And so that first kicked off with science fiction and it was, you know, it was the it was the heavy hitters. It was Alien, Aliens, Blade Runner, Matrix. And that was just absolutely wonderful. What a great escapist exercise. But then I, you know, then I went into a I'm nervous to say anything about giallo because that's one of those areas of film where there are real hardcore experts and aficionados where if you go in talking about it lightly, like you're just, you know, you're just you're just asking for trouble. However, as a as an avid fan, I can say that watching Fulci Zombie just launched me into not just the Giallo world, but back into Italian horror. Giallo, I knew that I'd always I'd always really enjoyed, but Italian horror I didn't always connect with. Some of other some of other Fulci films have really turned me off. But once I watched Zombie. Got sucked right back into it. And I just find this universe of like horror and proto slasher, like Italian crime thrillers, like all this stuff, pure comfort food. Not only do I not mind the discontinuities and the lack of plot logic and all of these things that are like pretty, pretty both endemic but also obvious about these genres of films, I actually see them as almost a, a benefit. It's almost like a fun the flaw makes you see that these films are the craft of people that are trying to make effective films rather than just filmmaking by committee and some of the more polished stuff that we see today. So, yeah, that was so exciting and you know, started with Fulci Zombie. I feel like it was bookended although it probably wasn't bookended, but it, in my head I, I sort of bookend it with Dario Argento's Tenebre or Tenebre, I don't know how to pronounce it. And those are just two like classics of of both of their subgenres and just so much more, you know, Sergio Martino, Mario Bava, Fulci, Argento, and then getting deeper into other names like Aldo Lotto. Yeah, it, for anybody that wants to find like a whole new universe of films, if you haven't gotten into Giallos or Italian horror, I think there's a lot of rewarding stuff there. Shudder has a great collection, as does Arrow, the Arrow streaming service, which is now available, I think at like $5 a month. So that's been a terrific, a terrific journey and a terrific way to spend a lot of time this last year.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. DJ, what is your number two?
1: So my number two was the movie that I actually kicked off the Real Convo ABC series with Billy Wilder's Ace in the Hole. This had been a movie that I'd actually never seen. I I had picked it up as a criterion blind by years ago. And it just sat in my very large criterion pile to get to. And after Kirk Douglas passed at the beginning of the year, I was looking through his filmography and I was just kind of overcome with how many movies of his I hadn't seen. And that one came to mind immediately. So that was that was what I used to, to launch that series. And I still have quite, well, maybe not quite a few, but a, a few Billy Wilder movies to get through in his filmography. But this one is towards the top for him, for me. I mean, 1951 and the, the take on media and sensationalism, watching it in March of 2020 was <laughs> was kind of surreal. And yeah, just, just really, really enjoyed this. I mean, from Kirk Douglas's performance to the, to the writing and especially everything Billy Wilder did with it. And yeah, one I'm, I definitely want to revisit after uh, almost a year of having first seen it, it's one that I keep thinking of and want to go back to and watch again.
0: Yeah. That's a, just a masterpiece. Yeah. That's great. My number two is Orson Welles's the other side of the wind, which was another one that I programmed for my, my virtual film festival is one that I missed when the restoration finally came out and decided it was time to, to dive into it. And, you know, I think, You know, like Ace in the Hole, I feel like is one of, is Billy Wilder's, like, one of his most acerbic and one of his most cynical films. I feel like The Other Side of the Wind is so dark and so pessimistic and such a bitter pill about hollywood and about filmmaking and you see orson welles really skewering hollywood itself and all of the 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 people that he runs into the the shallowness of the performers and the the money people and it's just a uh, an incredible look at a director and the the hangers on uh, it's it's a pretty magnificent film that I feel like I need to continue to dive into because it's it's Orson Welles at his kind of most radical as well so yeah i i can't wait to revisit it as well john what was your number 1 discovery of the year
2: yeah this is definitely a rediscovery that totters on discovery and that is twin Peaks season two and i say it totters on discovery because i obviously know twin Peaks season one like the back of my hand and and love that season and the return is amazing and has for me one of the greatest episodes in television history but season two i sort of slept walk through the only time that i ever watched it and you know just i'll just get it out there it's the least popular of the three seasons, and there are some good reasons for that, particularly the bad story arcs like Nadine, Nadine's super strength and James's <laughs> ridiculous run-in with his femme fatale. And because of those reasons, I think I missed so much of what is great about Season 2 of Twin Peaks. Before we say anything else, it's like, would X-Files even exist if it <laughs> were not for Season 2? David Duchovny, as the cross-dressing uh, DE agent, as well as it's like this big, weird, trippy, paranoid, paranoia-induced like science fiction universe where aliens live amongst us and, and all of this other stuff. So well, let's just put that out there. Season 2 may contain the seeds of X-Files. But even beyond that, it's like the highlight for me, the Stop Ghostwood event episode, is just one of the funniest episodes of television of all time. There also are genuine, you know, they're more of the Lynchian type episodes, uh, whether it's Maddie's last episode or the very final end of the season episode, which was directed by David Lynch. Those are in like more of a classical or typical Lynchian sense. Those are amazing episodes. But honestly, I just think the the collective experience was, was fantastic. I also just think, again, going back to the theme of escapism and, and having sort of using a lot of my media consumption as like a comfort blanket, is just such a fun world to live in. Although it has so many dark corners and dark dark nuances, I think that's part of it is that there is this nightmarish aspect of it. Obviously, you don't want to, you know, live in a world that has all of that. But I think that, I think that just accentuates some of the relationships that people have and the quirkiness and just, uh, you know, I want to go and I want to sit down in that diner and get like a piece of, piece of apple pie. So for all those reasons, revisiting season two was, was really great.
0: Yeah, I think it's getting close to time to revisit the entire series and just kind of work my way back through it. It makes me excited to dig back into season two. So thanks for that, John. DJ, number one, what was your, your favorite... Revisit, rediscovery, or discovery of the year.
1: So my number one was was that collective experience of going back and and rewatching the Christmas and holiday movies that were selected by the guests I had on the the Jingle Reel series, and I, I had fifteen different guests. We did sixteen episodes, and I I watched or rewatched every movie that were selected by the guests, and it was just. A really great experience going back and, and rediscovering movies that I hadn't seen in years or just watching old favorites that I would have watched anyways because of the time of year. And as John said, for, for one of his picks, this was just total comfort food, which was the whole point of doing this at, at this point in time in 2020. And yeah, there was, I mean, it led to some really great conversations within these episodes and, and why these These people connected to these movies and the guests were, it really was a pretty wide variety of people that I'm, I'm very close to and know very well and others who I don't necessarily know all that well. But I think every single conversation throughout these episodes, just based on these movies they selected was, was certainly engaging, but just brought kind of a whole new appreciation for these friendships and connections I have in my life through just talking about Christmas movies. (laughs)
0: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's great. My number one choice. This could have been potentially a 2020 release, but I think it's more of a 2019 release. I feel like uh, film releases get fuzzy as you get to the end of the year, but it is La Flor by Mariano Linas. It is an epic Argentinian film. It is maybe one of the the great film experiences that I have had. It is 14 hours long, 14 and a half hours long. I have said many times on various podcasts how much I love my epic cinema and love those long, long viewing experiences. And this is a film that is... It's co-created by Linas and four women who are part of a theater troupe. This ensemble all created this, this film together, and it's essentially a collection of short stories that don't necessarily have anything to do with each other, but the actors all play different roles. One film is a horror film, another is a spy thriller, another is a musical with some science fiction elements, another is a a silent retelling of a genre noir film, another is a a film with some witches in it, and another is kind of a western. Each piece kind of builds on an, on the other in some really interesting ways. There are some interesting thematic connections. But it just is this really beautiful, beautiful experience that by the time you're done with it, it just, it's staggering. And uh, it's, it's this just monumental work that uh, I would highly recommend anyone check out. Um, it was just one of the great, great viewing experiences that I had this year.
2: Oh, that's fantastic! Did you see? I think he also had. It's it's only four hours long, but uh, his <laughs> extraordinary stories.
0: I have not. This is one I do want to go and watch uh, more of his work because this one was really incredible.
2: I got to see La Flora this year. I also am a big fan of the epic long films. I certainly could have picked. I watched out one this year, and I could have absolutely picked that as one of my five discoveries. Extraordinary yeah. stories is really fun. If I, I think you'll like that a lot as well.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, I need to to visit more of his stuff now. Yeah.
2: Well, we're getting ready
0: to dive into our top 10 now. Thanks for humoring me on this discoveries portion of our episode. Before we dive into top 10, I'm curious what were the criteria that you had in choosing films for your top 10 list? Did you have anything that you that excluded a film? Did you have anything that you had to you had to watch it in a certain time frame? Anything that you had for your criteria for choosing films for your top
2: 10 list, John? So, first of all, and I think this may come up in discussion again and again, I typically have a much easier time in deciphering what is a 2020 film versus what is a film released in years previously. And so, to some extent, I'm just doing my best based off of Metacritic and other people's best of 2020 lists. But I have to tell you, it was really confusing, particularly (laughs) this year where, because often what I would do is I would just say, look, when was the film released in movie theaters in my city? And if it was released for the first time in my city in 2020 or whatever year I was thinking of, that would be my date that I would use. And with a year like this year, you can't you can't go by that. So when is it? Is it when it was first released at the Film Fest? So I, I just did the best that I could. And that, a lot of that was based off of Metacritic's lists and other people's lists to tr- sort of decipher what was 2020 and what wasn't. Then my next criterion I do, I am a firm believer. I think, I don't know if Alfred Hitchcock said this or if it's an apocryphal or if I'm misquoting it, but I like the idea that films are machines that make emotions. And so for me, my first test of how effective I think a film is, is how strong the emotional response is that I experience. And then sort of a second test is also, am I thinking about it more than 24 hours after I watched the film? And so those are my two like personal, unofficial litmus tests Um, on what deserves to be in my top 10. I'll say this year, I also had an additional twist that I don't know that I've done before, which is usually I try to make sure that my film list is more representative, more diverse, represents more countries than just the United States, more languages than just English. A little bit uh, of gender equity as well as representing people of color and other voices, uh, queer voices, et cetera, et cetera. I didn't really have to do that this year because hopefully there's just been a sea change in the amount of capital and access to distribution in terms of all of those things. More movies coming to me more easily where I don't have to like actively seek them out as a way of curating my own film watching or or list creation. So that hasn't been as much of a factor this year. It just naturally developed in that way. This year, I think more of a factor was because there are so many films available on streaming and people can get access to them, I wanted to pick some movies that were slightly different from you both. I was able to access you guys' lists. And so <laughs> while I do have some films that I had to be on my top 10 list and it would be an inaccurate representation of my film-watching experiences this year if I excluded them, to the extent that there were like negotiables, I veered towards films that you guys didn't already pick because people can watch most of these movies right now and i wanted people to have the broadest menu available so yeah you know one of the good things of this year going back to my point one of the really good things this year is i don't know if this is a function of theaters having less of a monopoly i mean basically being out of the uh, exhibition game that because it's streaming there's more of an equal playing field or maybe just the year finally people saying that People of color and women were going to have more access to the director's chair. Perhaps this is finally coming true. Whatever the reasons are, I just felt like this year's movies, if you look at any year-end list or you look at the films that are going to be considered for Oscar contenders, there is a much broader perspective, more truly representative of you know, the voices of the people that live in my country and across the world— then I think the narrow viewpoints that had previously been available through like most mainstream film. And that has been an absolute treat for this year. So that is actually a test or a litmus test I didn't have to apply to my list this year.
0: Yeah, yeah. DJ, what were your criteria for choosing films this year?
1: So as I start to say this, I'm having extreme sense of deja vu and feel like this is how I prefaced last year's. But... <laughs> <laughs> My list is kind of a mess. It's, it's really a mix of movies that I, I do feel strongly are amongst the best of the year. And then others that I just loved and really enjoyed. And I know they're movies that I've, I already have gone back to and watched multiple times this year or will continue to do so throughout through the future and so then kind of ranking in my list is very fluid there's a lot i can move around here it's i'm not even sure it's that complete given the low number of movies i have seen for the for 2020 but and again with what john said i i'm always dealing with does this count as a 2020 movie even though it played at one festival in 2019 or now, on top of that, with the extension for the Oscars, there's some 2021 movies that usually I wouldn't be counting, but seems like I maybe should be because they might count for the Oscar season. And that's kind of how I always base my lists is what what is may be nominated and what do I need to see before that? So, yeah, it's it's mine's a little all over the place. Yeah,
0: I do like you bringing up the Oscar uh, thing that totally messed with my OCD when i yeah. <laughs> when i saw that a couple of 2021 releases were going to be counted for the oscars and i i had to push that out of my mind and just say no i'm going to i'm going to only count films that were released in 2020 yeah i i had a hard time you know john like you i would typically say okay what has been released theatrically in the united states for 2020 and you know i could you know you know even if it wasn't released in my city i could kind of maybe make the case that you know even if i couldn't see it i i'd say okay well yeah i wasn't going to get to see you know this film this year you know sure that that's one i'll have to catch up with next year but this year is just it's weird it's strange i think i ended up ethically i did disqualify films that Only played theatrically and didn't have a digital platform release at the end of the year. So films like Promising Young Woman and News from Home, I think, is the other one that opened on Christmas Day and didn't have, that only opened in theaters and didn't have a digital release. Just because I, I have I have very strong feelings about not being back in theaters right now while COVID rates are rising. I just like I'm not going to count those as twenty as 2020 releases right now, because not a lot of people can can get to theaters to see those yet. Right. But DJ like you, most of these are ones that I just I think these are the ones that I think are the best. Uh, that I think are are some of my favorites. The ones that struck me the most that that really resonated with me the most uh, over the years over the year and you know i i think that these lists are typically incredibly subjective and john as you were saying you know i think over the last couple of years i've really tried to figure out how to how to have my lists be a little more diverse a little more representative and it was so much easier this year (laughs) Than in previous years. And I do think that as, as more and more streaming uh, services are footing the bill for certain films, we're seeing more representation on those services. And I think that's a good thing. So, yeah. John, let's dive into this list. What is your number 10?
2: My number 10 film is To the Ends of the Earth, a uh, film directed by Kiyoshi Kurosawa. He's a Japanese director, made many films known, I think, most widely in the West and perhaps internationally for as a J. Horror director of Cure and Pulse, although he's made uh he's made lots of movies in lots of different genres and film types. I think if I were to do just a snappy one sentence description of this movie, I would say it's as if Kafka had written a travelogue. Japan and Uzbekistan sort of a joint collaboration on this film to celebrate 25th anniversary of diplomatic relations between japan and uzbekistan the film takes place in uzbekistan and stars a japanese actor and singer her name is atsuko maida and she is fairly famous in japan as a member of one of their j-pop girl bands who now is is an actress and has worked with kurosawa before yeah this movie so much to recommend it very beautiful funny tense as a somebody who has done lots of solo travel and i've gotten myself in situations where i really didn't know what i was doing and i was very much a fish out of water and there is a particular type of anxiety a special brand of anxiety that comes when you are in a foreign country you have the language barrier and you don't know how to cross the street. It's a highway and there's a barrier and where you're trying to go is right across the way and you don't know how to get there other than cross this highway in the middle of a foreign country. I've been in that situation and this movie really does an accurate depiction, I think, of uh, putting on screen what that feels like. And beyond just that visceral experience, it also has some interesting commentary on, on the world, how People who are different view each other, and the the actress, the, the main character, certainly goes through her own journey, and there's moments of almost like magical realism in the film, and so all of that is very interesting, but I think the main thing I take away from this movie is, I am one of those people that loves movies that subvert your expectations, and particularly when it's some a filmmaker like Kurosawa who's known for horror or known for another genre who uses the cues and the signals and the filmmaking techniques of mm-hmm. that genre and just puts them in a different film type to the point where when you're watching this movie that, like I said, is sort of a um, surreal travelogue experience, nonetheless, it feels like you're in a horror movie. And so that dissonance... Is I just think is like, I, I love it when that's in movies. I think, you know, some filmmakers that do stuff like that is like David Fincher or, or Yorgos Lanthimos, I think are known for that as well. So yeah, it's a, it's a great film. I'm glad that I caught it. I caught it on the Brattle Theater's virtual cinema. I love giving money. It did take me a while to figure out how to use these virtual cinemas. I'm embarrassed to admit. But once I figured it out, I have to say I love giving my money to... uh you know, the local theaters that support and nourish all of us. So this is certainly a film to check out and I, I highly recommend it.
0: Nice. Nice. I always like hearing a new Kiyoshi Kurosawa. So yeah. DJ, what is your number 10?
1: So my number 10 is Steven Soderbergh's Let Them All Talk. I think we could probably spend a whole episode talking about this movie in in terms of the experimental nature, the improvisation, everything Soderbergh brought to it. But what really stood out to me with this and the reason why it, it ended up in my top 10 is, is the performances and just the story of these, these three women and their their friendship and how that friendship has changed over time. And just the, the story of connection throughout, whether it's, it's these three friends or the connection between Meryl Streep's character and her nephew or the the connection of her nephew and the publisher. And it, it just was such a examination of, of connection in life and throughout life. And really, I, I love, I, I mean, I've been saying for years that I think Diane Wiest is a national treasure <laughs> and um, her performances is one that certainly stood out to me here. She's got one or two scenes where I think she steals the, the whole movie and I mean, obviously merrill but candace bergen and lucas hedges as the nephew i just really enjoyed these these performances and this movie had barely been on my radar and read a little bit more about it and decided oh i better i better include this in in the up. and pretty much as soon as it was over immediately it was, I knew it had a place on my list. And then Josh, I saw your review for it and was like, okay, I, I think I'm in good company here. If, if this is why I enjoyed it. And while I'm on that topic, your reviews have just been a breath of fresh air in my Instagram feed throughout 2020. And just seeing what you're watching, whether it's a movie I've seen or planned on seeing or I've never even heard of, just something that I always smile when I see them pop up and read them because it's it really is just breaks up the monotony of social media for me.
0: Oh, thank you, thank you. Yeah, i I was surprised and blown away by this. I, my wife and I watched this on our uh, anniversary staycation. It was the last film we watched together, and it was a surprise. I love the. It almost takes on the form of a detective story uh, with Lucas Hedges, the nephew, kind of as a, a bit of a detective for everybody in the the film, and it's just it's a delight. It's it's fun. Yeah, I, I love that Soderbergh continues to experiment and that uh, he has found a new muse with Meryl Streep now. Yeah. Yeah. My number 10 film is Kitty Green's The Assistant. It originally was going to be a documentary about the assistants who worked for Harvey Weinstein. And it ended up taking shape as a drama following a, a female assistant working for a Harvey Weinstein-like character. And kind of her awakening and her realization of the, the abuses that her employer puts on actresses and uh, on the women that come into his uh, orbit. It's this really spare, this really very restrained film but you see from the perspective of someone who is an observer from someone who's a bystander you see the the bind that a lot of people are put in you also see the ways that these corporate structures enable abusers and predators and how difficult it is to hold these men accountable for their actions. It's a really, really just incredible film. It's really well observed. It's patiently told. The performances, especially by Julia Garner, who is the lead in this, are just really stellar. It's a really just pitch-perfect film that blew me away when I watched it, again, during my at-home film festival. It also shows the ways in which predators and abusers are not just sexual predators and abusers, they also abuse and gaslight and prey on people through so many different ways, whether it's abusing assistants verbally and harassing and creating a, a culture of, of distrust. It's a hard film to watch for some people, but it's really incredible. Uh, all
2: right, John, what is your number nine film? So <laughs> we discussed difficulty in placing year of release. This is the most incredible example of that. So my number nine is a double header: Hill of Freedom and Yourself and Yours, two films by Hong Sang-soo. I think 2014, 2016 is the official release date in other countries, but... This is the first time they're made available in the United States. Mm. Metacritic includes them in their 2020 rankings, and I've seen other lists that include these films. But, man, talk about, you know, you're talking about OCD in terms of being able to... It should be easier to just be able to say what year a film was released. And, unfortunately, (laughs) that is not one of the comforts we have right now. But, okay, so with that aside, Hong Sang-soo, high-volume filmmaker who's put out a lot of movies sometimes multiple movies in a year he's South Korean director who feels a lot like I spoke about Eric Romer earlier feels like Eric Romer's heir apparent in terms of style and like I said that consistently high volume output and so I'm still early in my Hong Sang-soo journey but so far it seems like all of his films they like it feels like they inhabit the same universe or similar universes with similar characters facing similar challenges, particularly in the romantic lives, as well as a lot of heavy drinking. That's like probably the main difference uh, beyond the more <laughs> international aspect of Hong Sang Soo's films. Eric romer was really you know heavily focused in like the French lifestyle. Hong Sang Soo is a little bit more international in that, both South Korea but also in. You know, visits to France and people from different countries pop up in his films in ways that I don't think really happens that often in Romer's filmography. The other major difference is it seems like everybody's a heavy drinker in Hong Sang-soo films. And it's just, you know, I really enjoy these films. They are films that I want to revisit. Sometimes I find myself when I sit down to watch a movie, I'm like, oh, maybe I'll just rewatch yourself and yours again. Doesn't hurt that many of his films are shorter as well, which is, I always like... For me, the highlight between these two films, I think Hill of Freedom probably has the more interesting editing structure, I think perhaps of any of the Hong Sang-soo films that I've seen, but I actually prefer Yourself and Yours. I think the actress that's in Yourself and Yours, Yoo Young Lee, is the highlight for me uh, hmm. of any aspect uh, from either one of these films. She's charismatic, enigmatic, in a way that really pulls me into the movie. So yeah, I've really enjoyed all the Hong Sang-soo films I've seen, and I suspect I'm going to be watching you know i'm going to be watching as many of these as i can catch in the in in the year and years to come
0: yeah dj what is your number 9
1: my number 9 is let him go directed by thomas basucha who previously i guess is most well known for directing the family stone which my mind is still trying to comprehend that movie next to next to let him go takes place in the mid 60s but plays as a western it's got some noir elements suspenseful even some horror elements to it again just a movie that i was really captivated by the performances there's kind of a i found kind of a at times a beautiful stillness to the movie especially when the camera's on the actors and it kind of lingers a little longer on on some silent scenes than I think other directors might on actors but when you have Diane Lane and Kevin Costner in these roles I thought it was a good decision and it just looks at two very different families and kind of how that word is defined by these families and the ties that bind and one that I'd been looking forward to since I saw the trailer and didn't really know what to expect had heard some good things and again after watching it just, just felt like it was was something that belonged on this list for me after one watch and looking forward to kind of taking another look at it, let let it simmer for a little bit and go back and revisit it.
2: Kevin Costner seems to be having a, a bit of a quiet resurgence or renaissance between this and Yellowstone. Yeah,
1: even going back to Molly's game from a few years ago, I thought he was the best part of Molly's game.
2: Yeah, or even going back to Hatfield and McCoy's. The Hatfields and McCoys, oh, yeah, right. the yeah. the miniseries, and I'm just I'm just realizing now as I'm checking out the Kevin Costner Wikipedia page, he is a he is a Tony away from being an EGOT. Really? So <laughs> wow. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so. Get him on Broadway. <laughs>
0: <Yep>. <laughs> this is a great recommendation, DJ. This is one that you know I haven't actually w- dug into it. It's one I haven't seen the trailer for. I think I've just seen the image for on my apple tv and it's been one that kind of the, the poster image or the cover art image just kind of turns me off from the film yeah yep and you know it's 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 a really good illustration of how marketing can sometimes do a film a disservice and i keep seeing this in people's best of year lists and i keep seeing this getting really good reviews, but I haven't really dug into the reviews yet. And so seeing this on your list here makes me really eager to check it out. So thanks for
1: this. Yeah, it's definitely a slow burn. And it, I mean, it certainly has some of the cliches that come with the themes, but I, I was just really, really impressed with it. And it's funny you mentioned the marketing because I remember seeing the trailer for this in the theater. So it must, the trailer must've been earlier in the year. And the first shot of the trailer is Kevin Costner and Diane Lane in uh, farmhouse kitchen and my <laughs> mind immediately is saying they made a secret sequel to man of steel <laughs> and i'm like how and then i'm like this is not man of steel 2 so i was kind of pulled in right away cuz i couldn't couldn't understand what Diane Lane and Kevin Costner were doing on screen yeah. together on a farm if they weren't the kents
0: <laughs> well my number 9 film is never rarely sometimes always it is a film written and directed by Eliza Hittman it is just this pretty incredible almost neorealist film about a teenager who discovers that she is pregnant and because of the area she lives in she has to have parental consent in order to get an abortion and she lives in a, a home that is not happy that is while it might not be physically abusive, it is verbally, emotionally abusive. It's not a, a, a happy home. And the consequences for her would be, would be dire. So she and her cousin go to New York. They steal money from the, the grocery store they work at, and they get bus tickets and go to New York to go to a clinic to go have the procedure. But along the way the film we we learn all about the process and about how how difficult it really is in this country uh, about all of the restrictions about all of the the difficulties for young women and for teenagers uh, the ways that crisis pregnancy clinics uh, that are often run by religious organizations will manipulate and will often misinform women who are pregnant of their options and will tell them that they are less far along in their pregnancy than they actually are. It's a it's a harrowing film, it's a beautiful film, it's an angry film, it's just, it's really really stellar. Yeah, I just think it's a it's a profound work of empathy, and the performances in it are really, really incredible. Uh, Sydney Flanagan is a first time actor. Eliza Hitman often works with non professional actors, and she just uh, gets some really incredible performances out of the the people she works with here. So, this is difficult subject matter, but
2: it's uh, really, really incredible. Josh, I'm I'm glad you picked this movie. I think if you hadn't i would have i probably would have even have put it up higher than this i I'd, I'd known of eliza hitman just from going to sundance film festival in the past mm. uh she's mm-hmm. even prior to this film was a pretty big deal there she's one of the two directors on this list that in some ways were just totally robbed of you know a national wide release run in the theaters of of her film i think she might have been something, you know, close to a, hu- a household name, or at least, a, it, it you know, she would have been more widely known to art house mm-hmm. film goers if if things had gone just a little bit differently this year. Acting and cinematography both excellent. I found the procedural aspects of her trying to get her medical procedure to be absolutely enthralling, but yet, yeah, all of the obstacles that put in her way—it's just—it's appalling. I thought the aspect of sleeplessness that's present in this film uh, really accentuated the stress and strain that Autumn was feeling and made it so that I was feeling more of that because while I've never been in the particular situation she was in, I have been sleepless, and I can only imagine trying to navigate New York City if you're not familiar with it without being able to get much sleep on top of the other strains and stresses she's dealing with. And just the strains and stresses of being a female in this hostile world yeah this is a this film is a treasure yeah yeah
1: yeah and i i actually watched this last night and i th- i think if i was really buckling down and doing a straight best of best films of, to- of 2020 this would probably make that top 10 i was i was on the edge of my seat the the whole movie just waiting for what was was coming next and had heard a little bit about this and then obviously in the prep had seen both of you put it put it either on the list or in honorable mention and i went on immediately after watching last night and added it as an honorable mention for me the performances as john said the cinematography and taking the sleeplessness aspect out i kept imagining myself trying to navigate new york at 17 if i'd come from a small town in pennsylvania because i remember trying to navigate new york on my own in my 20s and like, forget about it compared to everything this character was dealing with and just i was really impressed with with this one
0: yeah yeah no it's a it's a special film that yeah i think you're right john i think that if this had had a wider theatrical
2: release i think it would have been talked about a lot more this year john what is your number eight film My number eight film is Beginning. This was an official selection at Cannes, which, sorry to sound like, you know, like I'm I'm beating (laughs) a dead horse, but meant something (laughs) totally different this year because there wasn't a Cannes Film Festival. And again, yet, just in terms of the impact on a budding artist's career, really disappointing because Dea Kulumbagashvili, director from From Georgia where this film is set this is just a stunning feature-length debut from her and having that first official selection of Cannes would have really been amazing for her but still the film itself is amazing and I think people who are fans of filmmakers like Haneke or Tarkovsky or Chantal Ackerman I think they'll just immediately find something to celebrate with this film. Again, the the title is Beginning. Thumbnail sketch of this plot would be ridiculously inadequate. And I want people to experience this like I did, which is basically uh, blind viewing. So I guess what I'm going to say about it is there is a woman who is a mother and a wife living in the country of Georgia, not in the capital, but more in a a village out in the the mountains. uh, And that's played by... I, I'm not going to pronounce her name correctly, but I think it's Ia Sukushvili. And and this woman and her and her family, they experience these hardships due to their religion and just the ambient misogyny uh, of their area. But what really sells me on this movie is Dea brings this like unique combination of shot compositions that play with depth of field and long takes. And, you know, it's slow cinema and there's a static camera for much of it. But that static camera serves as like a counterpoint to a plot that is much more shocking than static. And these elements feel both evocative of some of the filmmakers I've already named and other filmmakers that I know and love, but also wholly original. Part of that is probably from the setting is so wholly original to me too. I've never seen a film that was set in Georgia to my knowledge. The brutality of this film means it's not for everyone. So I think sort of Mentioning some of the filmmakers I mentioned, I think you could also probably mention Gaspar Noe, sort of could give you a sense of whether or not this film is going to be for you. But for fans of international slow cinema or extreme cinema, like just stop what you're doing. Stop listening to this podcast. Go and check out this movie if you can find it anywhere. I loved it. And it's it feels like it feels like we'd be very fortunate to get more feature length films from this director.
0: That's great. I do think, if I remember right, it's coming to Mubi pretty soon. And so, yeah, this is one that is definitely high up on my list to see. DJ, what is your number eight film?
1: So this is where we start to get into the area of my list, which, which is more films that, that were favorites this year that I plan on revisiting numerous times down the road. So my number eight is The Vast of Night, which I believe is uh, Amazon Video Streaming directed and written by Andrew Patterson which I believe is his debut both writing and directing and I I spent most of this movie thinking to myself where has this person been both I mean the director the young actors in this movie right from the start it's obvious that it's heavily influenced by the Twilight Zone it really plays as an extended Twilight Zone episode and I mean right from the, the first moments with Jake Horowitz, the young actor, I was just drawn in by his performance, the dialogue. He has a confidence about him with this character that I just, I was taken off guard by it. I did not used to seeing this type of confident performance from an actor so young that I had never heard of and hasn't done that much. Mm -hmm. I just found him so watchable right from the start, as well as Sierra McCormick. The other young actor who plays the other main character in this movie. And there's a lot of fun to be had, I think, watching this movie and and finding its influences. If you watch, definitely pay close attention to the the call letters of the radio station. That's a little Easter egg. And I don't want to say too much because I I don't want to ruin any of it for people who haven't seen it. But I I just really enjoyed it. And it's one that I've rewound it just the last 10 minutes or so a couple times and rewatched it three or four times after watching the movie just to kind of let it let it set in and definitely one I'll I'll revisit and again another one that was not on my radar at all and actually heard about it on on like morning radio driving my son to school the DJs were talking about it and I was like I haven't even heard of this movie and looked it up and added it to the list and definitely one I'll have a lot of fun revisiting I think
2: yeah the the dialogue is crackling in this one mm. I absolutely could have put this on my, my top 10 list. I, I'm a big fan of Vast of Night. This is a, this is a great little flick. It's, there are aspects of it that feel a little slight, but that's not how it felt when I was watching it.
1: Yeah. Yep.
0: That's cool. This is one that I keep sleeping on, so both of your recommendations make me really eager to watch it. My number eight film is Maimuna Dacour's Cuties. This is a film that sparked a lot of controversy when it came out because of all of the fun QAnon conspiracy stuff and all of the the internet trolls that came out to try to suppress the film. But this is an incredible film. It is the story of an 11-year-old girl, Amy, who comes from Senegal and lives with her mother and her two younger brothers in a really small apartment in Paris. And her mother is preparing their home for the father to come back from Senegal with a second wife. And as Amy is beginning to, is trying to process her feelings of this, uh, she begins to encounter a group of girls at school who are part of a dance troupe and she begins to find some more freedom in the dance troupe than she does in her traditional Muslim family but in this dance troupe there is also the the exploitation of the ways in which children are encouraged in modern society to to objectify themselves and And so there is this push and pull between these two different experiences of uh, femininity and the ways in which young girls are asked to grow up faster than they should. It's a difficult film. It's also incredibly funny at times because they're 11-year-old girls and they are goofing around. They're still growing up. They're still learning about uh, the world. They're still encountering the world. I was surprised at how charming and how funny the film was at times, but the film itself is really beautiful by the end, and it shows Amy really looking to find a third path uh, between these two extremes, and I think that all of the complaints about the film really don't understand what Ducour was really trying to do in telling the story, in trying to recount her own experiences as a young immigrant growing up in Paris as well. She also spent a lot of time interviewing young girls and understand trying to understand their experiences and working with child psychologists to craft the story and to create safe working environments on set. So it's a great film. That I think was unfairly maligned, and I think that I want to make sure that people check out this film by a uh, woman of color who really produced this incredible work.
2: With all that's going on in the world, isn't it absolutely insane that there were some people that thought that this was the thing that we need to focus on to create controversy (laughs) around?
0: I know,
1: I know. But doesn't it fit right in (laughs) with the rest (laughs) of it at the same time? It does. Honestly. (laughs) It does.
0: (laughs) Oh. John, what is your number seven film?
2: So my number seven film is I'm Thinking of Ending Things. This is a Netflix movie. It's, I think this is one of the, you know, one of the movies on this list that uh, a lot of people have already heard about. And, you know, there's not a whole lot I have to say about the filmmaker that hasn't already been said. He's, you know, Kaufman's one of our great cerebral, like literary filmmakers. I think now he's a little bit out of fashion, perhaps receiving a little bit of criticism for, Subject matter, what he represents. But to me, having studied like some of the critical reaction to Ingmar Bergman, it feels a little bit like some of the reaction of the Swedish left against Ingmar Bergman back in the day, where it's like, hey, we have all these political things that are going on. Like, why aren't you addressing this more directly? And Ingmar Bergman's like, that's kind of not the point of the movies that I make. It's not who I am as an artist. And I don't even know if that's Kaufman's reaction, but. That's been sort of my take on that. Okay, so set sort of some of the critical expectations I had coming into this movie aside. You know, the acting in this movie is fine. Uh, the cinematography is fantastic. This is certainly another postmodernist film from this director. And I guess the plot is okay. But why I put this film in my top 10 is the psychological component. Hmm. For me, this film. Is my favorite depiction of. There's a collection of films that I've seen where it's like the movie is meant to be a depiction of sort of like a person's mental prison. The mental prison they construct for themselves, whether it's based on like past pains and tragedies or even just like their failed ambitions. We've discussed that I watched a lot of the same movies in slow, close proximity. And one of the cool things that happens when you watch. Uh, lot of contemporary films in in a enclosed period of time is the movies almost start to be in dialogue with each other. Mm-hmm. And one of the dialogues that I felt was this film felt to me in in that depiction of mental prisons, like it was in direct conversation with, say, Defy Bloods and some of the experience of the characters in that film. I think also, in a strange way, this movie is in conversation with another movie we're going to be discussing. Because what most impressed me about Fox Rich, who's the subject of time, is how clearly she has managed to overcome the wreckage of her own past in a way that the characters in this film or the character in this film don't appear to have, or at least... There's no unambiguous miracle here the way that there is clearly an unambiguous miracle in time in terms of how people can overcome the mistakes that they've made and, and the, you know, the injustices of society or, or whatever it is that they're overcoming in their past. And frankly, like, this movie belongs to my top 10 because it's sort of changed the way that I look at memory and my own memories. And in a year where, like, isolation takes on a whole new meaning, this movie carries extra weight for me and extra power. So, big fan of... Um, thinking of ending things.
0: Yeah, I think this is a a pretty stellar film. I saw it pretty late after it had come out, and people were raving about it or were hating it, and I wasn't sure how I was going to feel about it. And yeah, I think there's there's a lot going on here that I think deserves a close reading, and probably more. Dissection than we can do, and just a capsule conversation about it. But <laughs> you, yeah, you know, exactly. I mean, I think there's there's just so much going on about regret, about holding on to the past in a way that is toxic and a way that is destructive. I think it's really pretty incredible, and I think that you know, so so often Charlie Kaufman's characters are navel gazing, and we're we're meant to feel sorry for them. And this is one of the few times that I feel like he's, exa- he's taking a bit more of an examination of that and is actually being a little more critical of that impulse.
1: Yeah, and this for me this was one that I feel I need to see it a few times to to really really appreciate everything going on with it and I just I can't bring myself to rewatch it anytime soon <laughs> after that initial rewatch. I spent like John said a lot of time afterwards thinking about memories and interpretation of memories and past relationships and and just everything that comes with with this movie. Yeah.
2: I mean, yeah. It, 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 genuinely I was talking to my friend Chris about this the other day. I have experienced Like walking down the street and thinking I'm seeing people and specifically like like I'm engaged to be married and specifically like thinking I'm seeing people from past relationships or whatever. And like the idea that memories, I think particularly like with the isolation, like they're playing a lot closer to the surface than they ever have in my life. And so seeing that in a film, I thought was just, was just really powerful and You know, another another theme of a lot of the films this year is like they there are a lot of films that seem like accidental covid films, like accidentally. They just perfectly encapsulate either something of the experience of isolation or some of the things that we miss most about just being able to hang out with strangers without wearing masks or whatever. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, no, this movie, I don't know. uh, Genuinely, I don't know if this movie would have the same impact on me, say, like, you know, two years ago or two years from now. So, right. but absolutely a movie of its moment and a movie that has just
1: changed the way I see the world. So,
0: yeah, yeah, that's great. DJ, what is your number seven film?
1: So my number seven is The Invisible Man. This was one of the last movies I saw before the theater shut down. It was, it had been on my list and I I work at a private school, we'd already been talking about how we would treat our spring break knowing we have international students and what all of that would look like with covid so i i kind of had an idea that i did i mean i didn't expect theaters to shut down but i had an idea that i probably wouldn't be leaving home for a couple weeks given what we were discussing at at school so i decided to run out and see this in case i I didn't get out of the house for a couple weeks Mm -hmm. i was very glad i did because as we know theaters shut down shortly after that and I I have watched this twice now, and I I loved it. I, I I mean, I loved it as a horror movie. I loved it as a remake of the classic Universal monster movies. And then I think there's so much to be said about this this movie as a, as a metaphor in terms of treatment of survivors, believing women. There's there's a lot to unpack here for for me in terms of uh, just the, the how it's shot it's it's really again similar to what i said with the endless less is kind of more with this one where i think that one of the biggest strengths is just the use of negative space on screen which leads to some of the biggest scares and for me what was possibly or probably the most shocking scene in a movie of the year and then when i actually got a chance to watch this with my brother my sister-in-law and my wife who usually would never watch a movie like this they reacted the same way to that scene uh, which i don't want to spoil here and so I, I was just a huge fan of, of what Lee Winnell did with, with this. And, you know, I, I think this was originally supposed to be part of that Dark Universe remake, connecting, redoing all the Universal Monster movies and connecting them. And I'm so glad The Mummy kind of killed that. And this was able to be its <laughs> own thing. Now I think Lee Winnell's doing The Wolfman with Ryan Gosling and... If we get more of these one-shots that aren't necessarily part of a Connected Universe and they're as good as this, I'm I'm all for that. This was a movie that I, I will definitely be going back to watch over and over again. I thought Elizabeth Moss was one of the best performances of the year. This was an introduction for me to Aldous Hodge, who I'll be talking about a little bit more considering he's in another one of my top tens. Yeah, just was really impressed with, with this.
0: Yeah, this is a really fun horror film that I think digs deeper than a lot of them and i i love what you said about if this is the way they're going to approach the re-envisioning of the universal monster films then i will be much happier with the effort so
2: yeah this is a good yeah i think i i totally agree with you i saw this in the movie theater it was the last film i saw in the movie theater and i really enjoyed it i tend to like blumhouse just the concept of like Blumhouse yeah. filmmaking, where basically he primarily just focuses on making sure that the movies have one or two really interesting things going on. Usually it's the concept, but also there's a, you know, with this film, it's like pretty clearly the, what is it? I don't know if it's the first act or the second act where it takes place in, in the sister's home and it, it, you almost have like a Michael Haneke feel. During Mm -hmm. it, the suspense and the tension is just really excellent. And I, too, am excited about seeing any of the universal monster films that... I was just looking this up. I don't know if Blumhouse is going to be connected to all of them going forward. I thought they were, but maybe that's more up in the air. But Wolfman sounds like it it could be quite a bit of fun as well.
0: Yeah. My number seven film is Rada Blank's The 40-Year-Old Version which is a really delightful comedy about a black playwright and teacher who, as she approaches her... 40th birthday. She was a 30, under 30 recipient, but still is struggling to make ends meet and to be taken seriously. She decides to make a career shift and turn to rapping because she's tired of writing plays for white institutions that just want poverty pornography. And every time she tries to write something authentic, she gets white directors and white producers who want to inject elements to make the white liberal audience feel good about themselves and she feels like every time she gets a play put up it completely changes and she completely sells out her vision and uh, she can't be authentic. And so turning to rapping allows her to be authentic to who she is. Through this all, she's also dealing with grief over the the death of her mother, who was an artist and who, who managed to stay true to her vision. It's a beautiful film. It's very funny, but it also has these really, really incredible heartfelt moments. There are shades of uh, Spike Lee in it. It's an incredible film. It's really charming, really fun. wrote blank uh, wrote, directed, and stars in it as well. It just has this real lived-in texture to the black-and-white photography. Yeah, I I cannot recommend this one highly enough. It's uh, so much fun to watch. John, what is your number six film?
2: My number six film is Promising Young Woman, I think we're going to be talking about this later, so I won't say too much, but I will say right now, I just think that this is like an instant genre classic. Mm. I don't know if it's even a cult classic because I think it's probably going to, I think enough people are seeing it and certainly judging by my Facebook feed, people who are not in the cinephile universe are definitely like checking this out. I feel like this has like a combination of of the moment cachet as well as it just is pulled off with such a aplomb that I think it sort of has a similar feel to how Get Out managed to break through all the media noise and like capture people's imaginations. I feel like Promising Young Woman is doing the same thing. I think my favorite thing to say about it is Becky Deanna called this movie Heathers for a New Generation. And yeah, I just, my fiance and I watched this movie. We watch probably two two to four movies a year and she loved it. And this is not the type of movie I thought she was going to love. So yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, discussing this more later on as, as somebody has wisely
1: selected this at a, a, a higher ranking.
0: Awesome. DJ, what is your number six film?
1: My number six is Spike Lee's The Five Bloods. I should start this by saying I've spent the last, I guess, 25 years as one of Delroy Lindo's biggest fans. Uh, ever since I first saw Get Shorty, I feel he's an actor who he does not appear in as many movies as i wish he would so having this be a showcase for his talent i was i pretty much had a spot on my list just from that but i I was just blown away by by this and i we discussed this i think the first year we we did this with the three of us because black klansman was i think my number one movie that year and i talked about how i thought that was a masterpiece from spike and uh this one is right up there with it and considering Spike Lee's been an important American voice in film for over 30 years now. And here we are with, uh, I mean, almost back-to-back movies that, I, I i mean, I can't even start to unpack this one here with, in terms of all the, the various techniques he uses, the, the themes at play. One thing that I thought was going to bother me at first was the fact that he didn't have different actors playing these characters when they were young and in Vietnam and they just had the same actors playing themselves almost 50 years younger at first I, that threw me off and then by by the second or third scene I was like ah, okay I don't mind this <laughs> uh, but yeah I, I this is one that I've been meaning to go back and watch again and just haven't haven't been able to devote the time to do it given I was trying to see so many other movies but having only seen this once it's one I know I will be going back to in and watching again and I I the first time I watched it was I think it came out earlier in the year mid-year and was ne- on Netflix and it was one I was yeah I'll get to it I'll get to it I'll get to it and then when Chadwick McBos- Boseman passed away that was when I was like okay I need to I need to watch that like now and I think it was the you know that first weekend after he passed uh, I watched it and Josh you I know this we have, we have the same spot on yeah. the list for this one so I'll let you take it from here cuz you'll be able to give it the, the words that I can't right now <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah this is also my number 6 and I I also just uh I was floored by this one I think Spike Lee is one of my favorite filmmakers working today I think he is just amazing and continuing to do such vibrant such energetic work that I, I I continue to just be blown away by what he's doing yeah I am really really impressed by the just the quilt of techniques that he uses. In all of his work, that's part of his stylistic choice, whether it's direct address, whether it's documentary footage, whether it is the contrasting tones of comedy and drama and melodrama and action that all are used together to make this political statement about colonialism, about the Black experience, about the the use of Black bodies to fight uh, America's colonial wars. I mean, there's just, there's so much going on there. And I think you go into a Spike Lee film knowing that it's going to be stuffed with ideas. And that's that's part of what I go to a Spike Lee film. And I, I really love that you brought up the the lack of de-aging and the lack of uh, younger actors in the Vietnam flashbacks. Because as I was thinking about that uh, when I first watched it, you know, it just strikes me that, you know, in our memories we are who we are right now and you know so many right. of those those sequences play as as memories of these older men now that they still are who they are they're they're stuck they're they're stuck with this and they haven't moved past this they they are still they're still trapped with this trauma that they suffered and i just think it's it's beautiful it's a beautifully beautifully rendered bit of symbolism there I think that Spike Lee used it as a a feature rather than as a as a detriment. So yeah, I just absolutely I think it's a, an incredible film.
2: Yeah, Spike Lee. This this is such a maximalist film that there's so many different <laughs> things to talk <laughs> yeah. about. But I think one of the one of the cool things to point out is that Spike Lee is such a film nerd, and mm-hmm. from just like a film nerd perspective, there's lots of lots of fun things to grab from this, whether it's the apocalypse now as sponsored by Budweiser at the beginning of of the film when they first uh, enter the bar in Vietnam and realizing like just the commentary of just where mass culture has gone from being so subversive in the 60s and 70s to now being like just, you know, everything is so corporatized all the way up to like, I'm a huge Sam Fuller fan. And the fact that these guys are in the big red one, and one of the major action sequences basically takes place in Steel Helmet. Like, there is just so many different things to grab from this film, I thought, purely from, like, Spike Lee as a, you know, one of the biggest... Like, him and Scorsese, I think one of the things that's so cool about them is that they're not only amazing filmmakers that have been in the game for so long, but also they are truly, in and of themselves, encyclopedias of film history. And I thought this movie used that to better effect than most.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Well, we're going to take a break here and come back with a follow-up episode where we will finish up our top 10 uh, because these are epic episodes that we do here as we talk about our top 10 of the year. So thank you, John, DJ, for joining me. This has been a lot of fun talking about these films today.
2: How are we only halfway through our top 10?
0: <laughs> <laughs> John, where can people find you online?
2: Uh, you can find me at Film Baby Film, the podcast. It's available, I think, pretty much in everywhere you can download podcasts. Uh, although we're not on Spotify. Spotify, I don't think, has, has uh, given me a contract yet. So... You can check out those episodes there. As we mentioned before, I'm currently on hiatus. But if you want to check out any of our old conversations, otherwise, I just got a YouTube interview with the man Daisuke Beppu. So if you really want to see what I think and and, uh, you want to see me talk at length on YouTube, my fiance says I look very handsome. You can also check out Daisuke's interview that I just posted.
1: Nice. DJ, where can people find you online? The best place is on Instagram at the real conversation, R-E-E-L, of course. And then the original 33 episodes of the podcast are available basically wherever wherever you get your podcasts. Apple, Amazon Music, Spotify, they're they're all there.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Thanks. You can find the Cinema Cocktail Podcast at cinemacocktail.com and you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Stitcher spotify or wherever you get your podcasts while you're at cinema cocktail check out some of our other shows including criterion channel surfing as well as news film reviews and analysis you can find me on twitter instagram and letterboxd at josh hornbeck cinema cocktail the website and all of our shows are supported by audience support so please consider making a monthly pledge to help keep things running by visiting patreon.com slash josh hornbeck For $5 a month, you get early access to reviews and all of our podcasts. And for $10 a month, you get the opportunity to suggest titles for bonus episodes of our shows. As always, I'd like to thank all of our current Patreon supporters. Your support really does mean so much. John and DJ will be joining me again soon with the second half of our Best Films of 2020. I hope you'll join us. Thanks for listening.